0: If you want your business to grow, bringing in other people who will have other ideas and hopefully together you can develop a better idea that will help the business to grow.
1: Hi, it's Angela Poon, and welcome to another episode of the MAZ Social Mastery podcast. In today's podcast, Andrew interviews world-renowned performance coach and consultant, Podrako O'Sullivan. Andrew and Pod discuss the value of money as barometer for success, how self-awareness and different styles of leadership are important when you want to positively influence others, and what are the common habits of successful people. What is so fascinating about Pod is his unusual path in life. He started out as a prospective priest in Ireland. He then moved into nursing one of UK's top heart health clinics and eventually moved to Australia where he found himself with a total of $24.45 in his bank account. Pod demonstrates a resilience and grit, and his life experience adds to his expertise as a coach and consultant to some of Australia's top companies and executives, whom he inspires and pushes into performing at even greater levels than they thought possible. He's also a podcaster with his incredibly popular weekly podcast, The Leadership Diet, always sitting in the top of the podcasting charts. There is always something to learn from Podrick, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I do.
2: Podrick O'Sullivan, when he arrived in Australia back in the 90s, everyone shortened their name, so he went pod. We'll ask him a little bit more about that. His reputation as a leading international executive coach has been established with over 20 years of leadership and coaching experience. He's worked in Australia, Asia, Europe and the Middle East. He's been labelled as one of Asia's top leadership experts. And he's author of the award-winning series of international books called Foreigner in Charge, Success Strategies for Expat Leaders. His last big corporate gig was Asia Pacific Presidents for a global product and consulting organisation. How did that go? Okay, in three years, he grew revenue by 250%. He's got a very interesting background in healthcare. Being Irish, he loves you too. We were study buddies. We did the coaching psychology degree at Sydney University, and we often see each other on the south coast in the beautiful town of Jaroa. Pod, welcome to the podcast.
0: Yeah, Great to be here, Andrew. Thank you for that uh, introduction. And yes, the town of Jaroa, what a great place to meet.
2: And it's overcast today. It's Pod. What a wonderful blend.
0: Podcast. There you go. Yes, I did... 20 years ago, should I have trademarked podcast? But I think I was a bit last, you know, a bit late to the, uh, to, the to the game. But nonetheless, I do like
2: that the Irish boy lands in Australia. Everyone adds an O, a Y, an E, or calls you an animal. So you decided to shorten your name and, and circumvent anything else that people came
0: up with. Well, what happened was, um, as you said, my my mother calls me Paudrig, and because uh, I'm from the south of Ireland, and in the west or northwest of Ireland, they say Porrig. And I lived for four years in a place called Sligo, which meant everyone called me Porig, which is very normal there. Porig Harrington, the golfer is from that part of the world. And it's spelled the same, but it's pronounced differently. And then I lived in London for a couple of years. And of course, all my friends from Sligo were in London. So over there, I was called Porig. And then I came to Australia and they're going, they're looking at my name and they're going, are you Warwick? Was that Roderick? And like, I don't quite get it. They go, no, I'm not, War- not Roderick, not Warwick. Just call me Pod, it'll be easier. And here we are nice and 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 here we are
2: in a very important topic if i think about coaching psychology executive coaching leadership and i've done this a number of times i come to you so i wanted our audience to hear lessons from you as well but let's pull on the red thread a little bit before you came to australia growing up in ireland and your background in healthcare how did that evolve
0: yes i have a very strange non-linear and totally unexpected career andrew and most people when they go what's your background they go are you serious so I grew up in the southwest of Ireland. I'm the eldest of five kids. And then in the early 70s or mid 70s, uh, as in as in the 1970s, last century, Andrew, Ireland was in a, a real depression. It was one of the poorest countries in Europe. And so you know I've got memories of Dad got paid every Wednesday at lunchtime. And from Monday night onwards, we would have packet soup and maybe bread. And that was it. So, you know, it, but that's all we knew. Right. So it was very normal for us. But what that means is when it came to me leaving high school and going to university, because my dad was in the police force, and at that stage, it's different now, but at that stage, university fees were fully paid for, I didn't think that I could afford to go to university or my parents could afford to send me to university given I was the LS to five, et cetera, et cetera. At that stage, I wasn't aware of such a thing as you know university loans or whatever else. So I decided to do something else that didn't involve me going to university. Growing up in, in the high school I was going to, I got involved in a range of different things. At one stage, I was contemplating being a priest. I know people look at me now and go, are you serious? But I spent six weeks in the seminary now, in the wrong wrong place for me. So I ended up becoming a nurse. So I went up to Sligo, the Northwest of Ireland, and studied um, what's called general nursing or registered nursing. And that brought me to London later, where I I worked in cardiac surgery and coronary care and uh, cardiac transplants and all that stuff like that, which is an extraordinary career. But what I was, sorry, extraordinary experience, I should say, Growing up in Ireland, I was also a musician. So I played in lots of different bands. Um, You've mentioned U2. U2 were starting out you know, about 10 years ahead of us, so they, they kind of lit the way. So I was you know, a geeky musician. I was involved in, in um, you know healthcare, et cetera. Went to London, spent four years working in a place called the Royal Brompton, which at that stage was the National Heart and Lung Hospital of the UK, the first places where cardiac um, surgery ever took place, the first ever mitral valve replacement. a Whole lot of innovation. And then five years later, I moved over to Australia and I've been here ever since.
2: It was interesting doing a podcast with you and Dr. Tom Buckley, who's my partner in crime at the Strive Stronger Research Institute. And apart from having subtitles, when you both started talking Irish, <laughs> did, did, did you notice when you listen back to that, there's a time when you both start riffing and and your accents got, you know, I'm having thought bubbles old, I'm in the middle of a podcast. Bastards. Yeah, it like, did. It's like, well, wow, I need to really lean in here. I think we'll put in some subtitles. But it was fascinating learning, and that's what I love about doing a podcast with someone you know really well, because you can ask the questions you've probably always wanted to know, but they either think you're weird or getting a bit too deep. And it was interesting hearing about your background in healthcare. I'm not surprised you were thinking about going into priesthood. My friends and family, if I'd ever said that, they they would have said, what are you on? (laughs) You're (laughs) compassionate, you're caring. So that makes sense to choose that vocation. But
0: why did you leave? Well, what happened was um, the high school I went to, there was an extraordinary priest in the high school called Roger Kelleher, who got involved in, his job was pastoral care, but he also was a brilliant squash player. And he would bring a whole lot of guys to the squash course on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And, and I'm imagining him, he was in his late 40s and 50s when we were like 16, and he would thrash all of us. But his other job, which I didn't realize so much later was, he was a recruitment officer for the Archdiocese, for the bishop i.e. looking for future priests. Was it? They had talent
2: scouts in the, the Catholic church.
0: <laughs> and I don't think any of us really realized that. Now, that, he wasn't doing anything Machiavellian. What he was doing was just, you know, getting close to all the guys. And then if someone had any kind of orientation towards that way of life, he'd just get closer to them and just chat to them. And, but of the cadre I was in, four of my five closest friends ended up going in to the seminary. And so I was, I was number five of the four other guys. Two left pretty quickly. Like I, we went in, this is interesting, but just not for us. And two of the other guys uh, were ordained. And in the fact, that they have both left since, uh, which is really interesting. It's just a, a state of Catholicism in Ireland, rather than his poor recruitment. But he he was just quite extraordinary. Spotting, you know, these guys have an orientation towards helping, and you know, in his view, the priesthood was one orient- one version of that. So of the three of us who left. All three of us went into healthcare roles of different kinds pretty quickly afterwards. Uh, In my case, it was nursing. In the other cases it was um, psychiatric care of different kinds.
2: Mm. And you come to Australia, settled here. You've got five kids and a dog named Max. When your kids are saying, Dad, we want takeaway or what's this, do you remind them of the story about having packet bread and soup?
0: I have, and as you imagine, because I know you got kids too, Andrew, they just glaze over and go, "Yeah, what, whatever." Sure, Dad. <laughs> in the old days, <laughs> in the old days, and that was the last century. Dad, we're now to this year, and you got the money, and we got the money. You so just go and do it. And of course, you know, it's very hard to explain to someone in a context that they don't understand. They have no understanding of it. It makes no sense to to modern kids. You know, the idea of like I was talking to last night, the idea of going to a restaurant for a meal in my background. Happen four times a year, and my mom would save up for it. And it was a really special occasion. And you know, it's classical restaurants they come around with a little trolley, and they have the desserts, and you pick the desserts. My mom would go, "I want both of those desserts for the same price as one, because I've been saving up for three months to be here." So you know, can we compare that to our modern kids' lives; it's, it's just dramatically different. So once I remind them regularly, there's no point. Yeah, we could do
2: a separate podcast on that, but that would have had some pretty big implications on you, your thought process, and. I'm going to change the order of our podcast, keep you on your feet. You, you normally do a podcast called The Leadership Diet, and we'll give everyone details where to listen. I love listening to your podcast. But you now charge a lot for coaching, a lot. Am I able to say? Sure. You told me recently, if someone's serious about coaching with you, it's $50,000 for a consultant. I love that. It lit me up. I'm like, well, this guy's owning it. So if you're serious about coaching with Pod, 50000 of the hard stuff, and you'll go and work with them. That's a big evolution from packet soup and bread to charging 50,000. I can't imagine how much work you've done in your self-efficacy, how much work you've done in your storytelling to justify charging that.
0: And you're right, the the, the notion of money is one barometer of evolution and, and it, but it's a very visible one, but clearly it's not the barometer of evolution or indeed it's not the barometer of value, but it is a, it is an interesting one. And I, I you know I do find myself sometimes going, you know, I was in a meeting only this week with top 50 leaders of one of Australia's most well-known organizations it's an ASX top 40 organization they have you know 10,000 plus staff around the world and I'm sitting there thinking oh how did I end up in this conversation is that interesting when you think about where I started but then again when you think about anybody who's got a business the idea of having the courage to go and do something different is I think one of the core characteristics of any kind of leader and certainly any kind of small business owner So it's by no means unique to me. In fact, I would say it's probably the starting point for most business owners is is that. But you're right. It wasn't in any ways a straight line from my starting point to where I am now. I've had many career changes, had many ups and downs. I tell a story that's very, very true of being uh, down to my last $24.45. I remember that figure very loudly.
2: Knowing that you've rounded that out. <laughs> I can feel the realness.
0: It was forty-five cents, and I was getting calls every second night from my bank who had a mortgage on the house. I remember very clearly that point in time. How long ago was that? we Where now? That was sixteen years ago. Wow, so very, very different place to where I am now. Um, I happened to uh, I had done some business development in an organization, and the head of human resources for that organization, who I hadn't seen in three or four months rang me out of the blue and said, oh, can can you come and do some work with us? Can I ask you a favor? I just need to pay you today. Oh my God, here we are, right? And the money landed in my account that day. And uh, pure ironically, that person then came to join my business about three years later. And even more ironically, I ended up marrying that lady three years after that. So she saved my life in a few different ways along the way, starting financially many years ago. I got goosebumps. I didn't realize. I've met your lovely wife. I had no
2: idea that so he helped you when you had $24 in the bank. He didn't know I thought I had either, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There must have been some resilience, some grit, and go through all the psychological constructs. But there also must have been balance with some almost despair.
0: I think at that stage, I mean, I look back now and go, I, I made so many mistakes. The biggest one was at that stage of my life, I was 32. I was backing myself uh, far too early in the sense that I knew what I wanted to do. I had fallen across this notion of coaching I knew that I would love to do it I had worked in recruitment as in headhunting and I was really good at that and the mistake I made was jumping out of something that I was very good at that was potentially a very lucrative role to be in and backing myself into a brand new sector that was still emerging as a brand new sector and I hadn't had enough experience so that, that was a big mistake. And I you know I look back now and when I, a lot of coaches come to me or a lot of execs come to me who are thinking of going into this field, I go, like, let's just let's just walk through your transition plan so you don't walk into the same mistake that I did. So that, that was a big mistake. But you know what I did, Andrew, it taught me um, to learn how to sell really well and it taught me to work very hard and it taught me to take on every piece of work I can get to First of all, pay the bills, but then to learn lots about it, and later then to realize what parts of this I'm good at, what parts I no longer am good at, or indeed what parts am I good at, but I don't want to do any longer. And therefore, the work that I do do, I want to do it and I'm good at it. And that's that's kind of where I'm at these days. But certainly, I look back on those moments and go, you know, there's a lot for about three years afterwards. If my phone ever rang after 6 p.m., my body went into a sense of fear because I remembered phone calls coming from uh you know one of the banks uh looking to go when are you paying your mortgage you're behind your mortgage again and um, thankfully these days I'm completely debt free so it's a very different sense of the world but it's I suspect it's a it's a moment that a lot of business owners go through and you're right there's there's a moment of despair and a moment of grit in terms of am I committing to this and in in that particular moment that when that phone call came through I had a, I had a bit of luck in the sense of someone came in was able to you know, cash flow me out of a out of a tough position. And then from that moment I've never looked back. But there was a moment of time.
2: I mean, think about coaching though, and some people might think incorrectly, oh, the best coach is the person who's got everything perfect, perfect, house, perfect, life, perfect, teeth, marriage, kids, home. Ruhbies, no one's perfect. It's the imperfections and flaws. My business strives stronger. It's founded on the word the old French word estrave, which means to push through challenging situations and come out the other side. And being stronger in all parts of our lives so you learn more from the challenging times but i imagine when you're down to 24 bucks you've had enough learning so let's put some of those learnings to practice and well, there's a couple of open loops we've got here and we'll tie some of them together sell me leadership and why it's important for a business owner
0: i'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of leadership like i spent almost all my life in this space maybe you asked me not long ago you know what's my purpose in life and without even thinking I said to you, every single day I get up to help leaders be as brilliant as they can be because the ripple effect leaders have on other people is phenomenal. So that's that's what I think about. That's what I do. That's what's important to me. I believe it's equally important in a small micro business with three people as it is in a, in a large corporate organization. So me, leadership is, is everything. So I am very biased about this. And I have a sense of leaders who step into the role of leadership. I look upon them as in it's a really noble role. And I mean noble in the true French sense as it bring, it takes courage. Because right? if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a business owner, there's a lot of upside, hopefully. But the downside is you're making decisions that are not palatable sometimes. You're making decisions that people don't like sometimes. You're being holding yourself and others accountable when you don't want to. So for me, when I look at leadership, I look at how do I help them be as good as they can be. But here back to your first question, you know, what is leadership? Like you can pick up any textbook any you know go onto youtube and you get thousands of definitions but the one that i use when i'm chatting to people is your know, leadership is about bringing into being what you want to happen or what's important for you because mm. without it it may not happen right so for me there's a sense of creativity or there's a, a dreaming up what is important to us or to me how do we bring it about takes energy and momentum and thinking through and it might require strategies it might require tactics and the third part is, it's important to us. So therefore, it's linking back into our situation, et cetera.
2: No acronyms, no mnemonics, come on, no seven steps, thousands of years through Eastern and Western philosophy. I love it. It's simple. You can resonate with it.
0: However, if you look at the other side of that equation is the motivation for a small business owner is growth. Yeah, I'm starting here, but my intention is to grow. So if I'm a single retail owner, as example, my intention might be to have five or 10 retail outlets. As example, if I'm a small consulting group, my intention might be to have four offices around Australia or 20 consultants in my team. It's a different motivation. The payoff is later. You know, the payoff doesn't happen right now, I might take some payoff down, you know, along the way, but I'm looking to get growth and therefore a payoff later. So that, that looks at effectiveness. You know, how effective are we in our systems how effective am I in terms of delegating to other people? How effective are we at thinking around partnering with opportunities outside our current domain, et cetera? It's a different type of thinking. So when we talk about leadership in those areas, for me, the most important thing is to, with the business owners, is to get clear, what is it I want for my business? Because if I want ultimately stability, if I want payoff now, If I don't want the hassle of having teams in different parts of the city or other cities, there's no point to me in engaging in conversations around growth. Because even if I try to implement them, I won't. Because my motivation, my core motivation is different to that. So when I think about leadership, my, my first starting point always is context. What's the context for you as the leader or the business owner in this case? And what, if you think about your context now and the context that you want, then what's your role as a leader? Leadership then looks like efficiency, and it looks like having a small core people who will stay here so I don't have to keep turning over, et cetera. Whereas the leader who's or the business owner who sets a business and their plan is to grow, it's a very different type of leadership. Now, As the outsider looking in, at any point in time, they look the exact same, but the motivations are different.
2: But I'm, I'm glad you framed that because so many people will ask someone, oh, how's your business growing? How many staff have you got? How successful is it? Are you scaling? But for some people, it may be a lifestyle machine or a choice that they've worked in a big company or they've always you know, had businesses in the past and they want to dial it down a bit and invest time in other parts of their life. i got to say, though, in my mind, stability, payoff now and growth, March 2020, when we lost 93% revenue in, in our business, in my speaking business and in our main business, Strive Stronger. I was thinking, why did I leave KPMG? No growth. <laughs> no growth. That last year, seriously, no payoff, no stability. And I know a lot of small business owners have been challenged like they never have before. And as we're coming back into this hybrid model of working, depending on the small business, some have flourished, tech-based companies or businesses that could scale are booming. I feel for the coffee shop and the providors in the little lanes in Melbourne, especially, who've had nearly a year of lockdown. And, you know, digitise your business, innovate. Well, if you're selling coffee or if you're selling flowers in a laneway where there's no traffic, it's been tough. So it's almost been two speeds through COVID.
0: Friend of mine runs a recruitment company that specialises in hospitality. So you can imagine last year they were just dead. They are absolutely booming with a major, major anchor. They can't get staff. They could fill hundreds and hundreds of jobs right today, but they can't get it now. There's a whole lot of reasons as to why they can't find them. You know, partly our borders are closed for so long. International students aren't here. You know, folks who were employed in hospitality, the jobs went. They then moved into construction. There's a whole lot of other reasons. You know, the unintended consequences of of good policy, etc. But what that means is, you know, as you said, you know, the the retail or the uh, hospitality business owners, which are probably the most visual aspect of of high street trading is, is those business owners they will boom as soon as they get their staff back because you know the population of the country wants to go back out so so going back to the you know the early distinction between both of them you know i use the word efficiency it has been a core term for that kind of business owner efficiency also means how do i retain a core number of staff because i don't spend or don't want to spend time in ongoing recruitment ongoing training etc that's where they will need to index quickly in order to be able to capitalise on the boom. But you're right. Tech companies that have a digital product and tech companies by nature are able to work in hybrid fashions because those kind of inf- workers generally do that anyway. It's
2: played into their business model, hasn't it? When you look at the share prices of Apple, Microsoft, Atlassian, Canva, phenomenal growth, phenomenal.
0: Yeah, maybe look at SIG. You know, SIG's business model is based on employment as its as core business model. Over the last, I think it was two years, the share prices jumped up by about 18, 19% because they quite wisely moved into other parts of digital economies and the staff can all work from home quite quite well. So you know, you're know, you right, digital, digital economies are, are booming and taking over some of the more traditional economies that we had.
2: Now that next step, when you do get equity into your business or you get investment into your business, how do you go about that? How, how do you help people with leadership and aligning that leadership to strategy, to people development? and staying sane
0: so there's, there's there's the word you used a few minutes ago which i think is the most important word in all this is identity and this goes to mindset it goes to understanding yourself it goes to self-awareness it goes to cognitive biases it goes to the identity needed at different stages of evolution so if you just if it was go that for a second then we'll jump into business think about the the identity and what i mean by that is the way you thought or the way you understood the world when you grew up as a you know, young athlete at in. Tessie versus the identity you had in your first business versus the identity when you first got married versus the identity when you first became a father versus the identity when you sold your first business and think about the way you made sense of the world at each of those times I'm betting that as you grew older and had more experience you were able to understand more of the world and how it truly worked than when you started
2: yes 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 no bump out yes 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 yeah. Yes, yes, hour. yes. The bump hour was going through a marriage separation at 39 years of age. And I it's so interesting you say this on identity, because I was the performance guy. I had, you know, won state championships multiple times. I had worked with national sporting teams, was starting to do TV work, wrote a book, was behind a lot of CEOs, execs, you know, lived the life. And then suddenly marriage failure. So if I ran into you, how are you going? I, I felt like I was a failure and that people would judge me. And so I spiraled walking around functional, depressed for 18 months. How wrong I was, Pod. Seriously, mate. And for any especially male listening to this, if you go through a challenging time and think, you know, you've lost it, strive, pushing through challenging times and coming out the other side. I had to totally change my identity. I'm a much better leader, coach, father, Lover, partner, dad, everything in between—that because I've gone through the bump bow, but I really struggled at the time. that I see this with a lot of athletes. If their only yep. identity is she is the netball player, he is the AFL player, and they're suddenly not, what else have they got?
0: There's two things there. One is I also went through uh, my marriage breakdown at 39, so I know I know exactly how you felt, and we we discussed this in the past together. In hindsight. Those events, be it the breakdown of a marriage, be it the, you know, you've lost your first big customer, your best staff member has walked out, whatever the event is, they're really, really hard in that moment. But it's the reflection after those events in terms of, okay, what's happened here? What was my part in this event? I, What have I done that's caused that staff member to leave? Even if I don't like the answer, that is the best reflection, because it's in those moments our, our identity grows. We start to see more of the reality that we previously hadn't been able to see Talk about marriage, which you and I both went through. We you know, in, in, at the moment, it's a dreadful thing after the, uh, and there's obviously a reason why we, we, and everybody breaks up their marriage. The relationship is not working for whatever reason. Typically, most people blame the other person at, at the beginning, but, but later you can look back and go, okay, I wasn't the best person in that relationship and I can now see what I was doing to cause that I have a choice. I can choose to do it differently in my next relationship, or I can continue to blame somebody else, right? It's a choice, yeah. Back to your question about the founder, the identity of the founder is phenomenally important. And the, you know one of the core reasons why founders are successful and the core reason why most founders are not is the founders who are successful are so for a few different reasons. One is they get good strategy, like they figure out a really good strategy for the business and they can pivot and there's a whole lot of stuff on that. Two is they get good cash flow, which can come with external funding or otherwise, but hopefully it's organic funding, but it can be otherwise. The third one though, is they adapt and change their mindset along the way. So the, the founder has gone, this is my baby. And as soon as I start bringing other people into it, and I don't like them taking my baby, they're in trouble at that point in time. Hmm. It may, the trouble may not show till months later, but they're in trouble at that moment in time. And it's like, it's, this is a bad metaphor, but it's a useful one. It's like a parent... But a five-year-old child that they adore and go i'm not yet sending this child to school because they will change well that's the purpose of going to school is to change and grow and evolve so if you want your business to grow bringing in other people who will have other ideas that hopefully together you can develop a better idea that will help the business to grow but if you are going i am the founder i know best this is my baby sometimes you might be right in that you do know best about some technical things of the business usually you're wrong
2: and if you are Getting equity partners, getting investment, there's there's a whole lot of different ways of doing funding. Go into that open-minded, knowing that you will lose some of the control, but but have a really clear strategy, as you said, really clear leadership. One of the best lessons I had, Pod, when I sold uh, what was healthy business that is now Executive Health Solutions, they wanted to change the name back then. And David Bafsky, who was the chairman of Accor... I can remember going to Mr. Bafsky's office, a lot of respect for Mr. Bafsky. Everyone called him Mr. Bafsky. And he sat me down and he said, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. You don't run this business now. We're changing the name. If you don't like that, get over it. And it was blunt, but he was right. And I can remember going out wanting to just throw all my toys out the pram. And I sat down the bottom of the office in William Street where he was in the Westfield Tower and just thought, he's right. I've, I've got to get over it. It was abrupt. It was a job that he knew that I needed. But I think that's where a lot of founders come undone because, you know, when you scale at that next level, it's not you. Exactly right.
0: And and I do smile when I when I meet people selling a particular consulting business for the first time. And they, you know, in, in in the best of intention to get a wide range of views, send out an email to all the friends going, look, I've got five different logos. Can everyone help me? Fit? No one cares. It's really, <laughs> not really going to be worth a while. Yes, just pick one. And as soon as you put on your business card, no one ever looked at it anyway. And it's that attachment to it that's, that's actually the problem. Surely,
2: part. though, the difference between magenta and a, a lighter grade of pink makes a huge difference to profitability.
0: Well, clearly, you haven't sent me those emails. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's a pause there. Is he serious about this?
0: <laughs> but again, it goes back to the founder's mindset. Are you trying to grow a business for growth versus stability? The person who's looking for stability is going, I really want to care for my, my the colour of my logo. But they've already decided without even knowing that. The person who's gone for growth is going, who are the customers that I don't know yet and how can I satisfy their needs? Can you guys help me figure that out? Yeah. Different mindset completely. And
2: rather than getting stuck on the colour of your business cards or the back secondary print colour, what pillars should people be looking at? So when I think about this, yeah, obviously you've got your leadership training and development and a vision of your business, but then we, we start talking about values and vision and behaviours. Can you talk to me about that? Because a lot of people get confused, and I think they look at this and sort of rewind the three different business types we've spoken about, the smaller business, uh, then the business person that's wanting to grow and evolve the business, and then we've got, okay, let's scale and get other partners in. Yeah. What's uniform throughout those?
0: For businesses that are scaling, like for a small business, the word values – probably never even thought about or, or talked about so you know five people or less it's probably a an interesting conversation once at the pub and that's it because values are, are so obvious because you can see it happening around each other you've got a small number of people you know you can see our our leader or the owner you can see that they value this because every time they make a decision it goes towards that particular thing you can you know straight away what they value if it's a retail you know, it'll be, you know, it'll be either volume of sales. It'll be net profit. It'll be whatever like you will see immediately because the business owner lives that every single day, the figure that people use when they're talking about you know, how much can I influence other people it tends to be, you know, five to 20 people around me. It's very obvious, 25 to 50, it starts needing structure to talk to people because I can't talk to 50 people around me every single day. It caps out at 150 as in the most number of people I can influence on a regular basis, the most number of people whose names I can remember, you know, their their families' names, their dogs' names. It caps out at around 150. So somewhere between 50 and 150, we need to start putting in systems, structures, protocols, processes that allow us to not have to do all of the work of scaling. As in, the system is now starting to scale us. So when we talk about scaling leadership, what we really mean is the way you lead five or ten people. How do you do something similar across 50 or 150, 500? a thousand that's scaling leadership in a small business and for this, for this conversation let's say small is you know, up to like 50 or 100 they, they, that kind of notion systems start with a small is you know does everyone understand the opening hours the, the manual protocols whatever that business is this you start getting to like 50 odd people by nature now in teams you've got three or four teams of people there might be shift workers if it's a consulting business, it might be the consultants and the accountants and the whatever it is. But there's a different small number of teams there. Therefore, the processes go towards teams, the interplay between teams. Do we have a common deadline that we need to deliver by, et cetera? The communications amongst the groups. The processes will start looking at. Do we have a you know, regular meeting structure? Do we have agendas? Do we have quarterly results? That kind of thing. Nothing onerous, but it's starting to give information to everybody so everyone knows what we're talking about. When you start hitting those numbers, decisions need to be consistent. And this is where values come in. So values are useful to help leaders understand and help everyone else to be aware of. We make decisions like this because we value this. So when it comes to making tough decisions or unclear decisions or decisions that have got three or four different solutions, we go back to what we value and that guides our decisions. So as an example, if we believe that getting revenue is the most important thing. And I have a sales guy on my team who was brilliant bringing in revenue, but they are crap to work with. But my value is revenue trumps all. Guess what's going to happen to that salesperson? They're going to get rewarded every single time. And that's a, either a said value or a non-said value. But every single time I'm at risk of losing this guy, therefore I'm at risk of losing revenue versus he's upset you know, Johnny in, in, the, in the in the other department. I don't care. That's a value in action. May not be the best value, but it's a value in action. First is we actually heard, I was with some crew the other day who are in a digital marketing agency. They've got about 40 folks. For them, one of the core values is, are our staff engaged and happy to be here? It's a core value. They fire two of their clients in the previous six months because the clients were too hard to work with.
2: They fire their clients, fire not their staff clients. their clients, yeah. I love that.
0: That's a value in action. You know, we value our staff. We looked at the revenue from this client. We looked at how hard they were to work with. They were not fair. They were becoming aggressive. We fire them. So I think one of the biggest misnomers is
2: that saying, client is always right, always focus on the customer. Rubbish. If your customers are paying the ass, they're not right, get rid of them.
0: I think the right clients are often right, as in mm. we think about what we want to do, where we want to specialise, and, and you know, the, you know, the work that we're best at, whatever that your small business is, and the kind of group of clients that fit that bill, they're the right clients for you. So hopefully you can work in such a way that they feel right most of the time because it feels good for you. But it doesn't mean that they have carp blanche that when they make, make mistakes, you just look it over. That's not the case. The idea of every client is right the whole time, I think that's a misnomer. Mm.
2: Now we've spoken a lot about business and about leadership. So I want to flip it and then we'll get onto some individual and some human performance parts. So what I want to flip, what are you growing? What's your business? What type of business and how are you putting this stuff into practice? And, you can, and if you feel comfortable, maybe pick one or two of the themes we've spoken about and give it a bit of, bit of context.
0: So I've, I've set up a new business a year ago. And so I've been a small business owner. I've, been, I've scaled businesses. I've sold two different businesses. And uh, in my last business, which was a consulting business, but I sold it into a US group. And then I went uh, into that organization and uh, took on the Asia-Pac leadership role. I was there for four years. And I left that um, in December 2019 and my, my, my plan was to take a month or two off and then guess what COVID kicked and I ended up taking about five or six months off um, but I've, I've set up a new organization it's a consulting organization uh, but this specializes specifically in uh, leadership teams in organizations that are multinational organizations so that's what I'm specializing in these days and I'm specializing in um, scaling leadership so organizations that are either fast growing or uh, and therefore they're putting on new people or they're growing into new markets and, and scaling leadership brings a whole lot of complexities that are often unknown until you get into it and uh, so you know one of the areas that I love working with is is helping leadership teams across different countries or, or different domains not figure out what complexity looks like because if we could figure it out then it wouldn't be complex but how do we navigate this and how do we get ready for it and how do we, um, and indeed the last 80 months of COVID has taught the whole world, that's a very complex situation. Hmm. The organizations and the leaders who've done best are those who've been able to navigate and figure out how do I pivot or change, or the, you know, the metaphor I often use, how do you do Tai Chi? Cause you know, the energy is coming from me at many, many angles. You still can't see it, but you, you gotta move with it. So, so really I'm, 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 working with complexity and scale leadership are the two areas I'm specializing are in. Are
2: you looking for stability? payoff now growth? Are you wanting to be Dr. Frickin' Evil and build a global consultancy? Insert laughter
0: now. Well, you know, there's different stages of 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 life and as business owners, I have built businesses specifically to grow, and went through the whole notion of the payoff is later, and that's why I'm doing it. And I have built businesses where which is all about the payoff is now. In my current life, um, my consulting part of the business is the payoff is now, and so I'm, and so the way I've constructed that business is. We we have uh, fifteen in our team, but we all own our own businesses. There's no employees in our business, so it's effectively it's a it's a shared umbrella type construct. Because all of us at this stage of our careers are maximizing for the now. Having said all that, we're also just started in a digital component of our business, which is a virtual reality, uh, using virtual reality as part of a leadership development process. It's still very new, and virtual reality is still new, but that part of the process is. If we take that um, to market, then that will be for growth. So two different areas.
2: Good answer because you're practicing what you preach. I liked hearing that. And I was that question was evolving as I was listening and I wanted to wait to get to the end, but you got real clarity. And for people listening to this, they'll see how concise that was. You didn't know I was going to ask that question. Uh, I just wanted to know it. the curious side of me as well, but it's also really punctuates what you've said. So let's uh, flip onto some more individual or some habits. Let's call them leadership micro habits. What are they? When you look at a leader, that's a a best practice habits, because you you talk about system structure and processes for an organisation, for the individual, that's habits.
0: The word habits is one of my favourite words, uh, which might might be why you used it, I'm not sure. But a number of years ago, I I, I led a research piece uh, which became known as the Daily Habits of Exceptional Leaders. And in this case, it was sitting in organizations, but it doesn't make a difference if it was large organizations, if it was a startup business, if it was a small uh, business owner, the habits are actually fundamentally the same across all aspects of leadership in all sectors. So I'll talk about this and we'll identify the factors of the habits, but and your listeners to this, I want you to know if you're a small business owner who's looking for growth and let's distinguish that as opposed to stability, then these habits will be effective, irrespective how, how early in your growth phase you are. So what we did was I had a hypothesis that leaders who are seen to be exceptional in the eyes of the people who, who they work with had a series of habits at home, before work, after work, on the weekends that primed them in such a way that when they turn up at work, they were really good. So that was my hypothesis. And having worked with lots of leaders, I had a hypothesis as to what that might be. But there was no research that we could find to actually identify exactly what those habits were. So what I did was I approached an organization called Leadership Circle. And and eventually, the the irony is they ended up buying my business out a couple years later. I approached them because they they had a very, and still do, a very powerful and well-respected leadership assessment tool that was global. And my, my thought was, well, whoever in that database that they have, as sits at the top end of the database, as in the 90 percentile or above, that means they are the best leaders out of that whole database. So let's say, so that group of people already identified. I.e., I don't have to spend time trying to figure out who's a great leader. They've already done that. And so what we did we, we set up a study where we we approached uh, 45 leaders across um, Sydney, Singapore, and parts of Indonesia and Hong Kong. They all were business leaders, as opposed to say HR or coaches, or whatever. They had to have been in the role for two plus years, and they had to have a profit and loss responsibility. So true commercial leaders. The organization size varied from I think the smallest organization was about twenty five, the large organization was Price Coopers for Asia Pac. So you know lots and lots of people, and a range of uh, folks in between. They moved across. I think it was about ten different sectors. We had sixty five percent women, thirty five percent men. Now that's just an interesting piece. Just hmm. this pause there. The most successful impressive leaders according to leadership circle database which is a global database majority are women that's also my experience is a majority of women so business owners and business founders i think we're seeing a really interesting phase in australia where there's more and more female business founders happening in, around our country which i think is fantastic by the way that means our future economy is in good hands but in this particular uh, research and so it was actually 60 40 not 65 35 it was 60 40 split so what we ended up doing was we created a study that went over four weeks. We um, most of them had, had well at this stage they all had smartphones. We were able to set up a, a, an app in their smartphone that prompted them three times a day to in a, in a very quick process to capture what they'd just been doing, i.e., what's the process you have. We did some interviews before the research started. We did some interviews at the end, and then um, we got something like four thousand pieces of data at the end of it all. And um, some of it was qualitative, most of it was quantitative. And so then we started looking for patterns. What are these folks doing in the morning? What are they doing at nighttime? What are they doing in the weekends, et cetera? And is there anything coming through? What astounded us was, even though these leaders were different countries, different sectors, the habits were almost identical. Let me walk you through some of those.
2: Well, I'm busting to know. Build up, build up, build up. What are they?
0: So, is this time to go for a
2: commercial break, and we
0: come back afterwards? This, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Give us the. Is it five, seven, nine, ten? So, in, in in the morning, these leaders all had the same habit, which was they spent somewhere between seven and nine minutes. Right, again, a short period of time, looking through their diary for the day, looking through the various important meetings, and not doing the to-do list. That's the obvious thing. That's what we thought they were doing. They were looking at the meeting and going, how do I need to show up in that meeting? I.e., what's my sense of presence I need to have in that meeting? Because so what they had realized over the course of their career was, let's say they went into a nine o'clock meeting and they got really annoyed. And they came out of that meeting and went into the 10 o'clock meeting and came out. And then at 11 o'clock meeting, they were still annoyed. The people in the 11 o'clock meeting had no idea what happened in the nine o'clock meeting. All they knew was, our leader Andrew is really, really angry. We have no idea what's going on ah right so they had to realize that was a normal pattern for them so they preempted throughout the day first thing in the morning how do I need to be in each of these meetings and most of them wrote down a single word strategic focused compassionate listening whatever the word was so when they walked from one meeting into another one they were now grounding themselves okay in this meeting I've already planned I need to be X what is that? That's I wish I
2: knew about this research when we wrote Match Fit about eighteen months ago. That's exactly a performance moment where you sit down and look at what are the big moments in the day, and how do you want to show up?
0: Love it. Really key thing. Second thing was they looked; they really uh, were obsessed about their diary. And I use the word obsessed, as in they were crystal clear. Here are my my objectives for my um, short term, medium term, long longer term. Typically is one to five years, depending on the organization. Some organizations have a shorter long term the manufacturing type organizations were much longer. But my short term is typically this week and this month. Medium term typically was quarterly, uh, up to up to a year, and then long term was uh, longer than that. So the other half of the morning was, looking at my short to medium objectives, what do I need to do today to move them forward? As in, I need to make sure my diary reflects those. These leaders were obsessed with not going to meetings where their presence was not ultimately needed. So they were obsessed with looking at every single invitation and not just accepting it. I'll come back to that in a few minutes because that's a really key thing. The third, the third thing was, which when we had this is, standard, is every single meeting they had was either 10 minutes long, 25 minutes long, or 50 minutes long. This is across a whole spectrum from different organisations. Why is that? Because they had recognised that I can't finish one meeting at 11 o'clock and start my next one at 11 o'clock.
2: So no monochrome sea of grey, back to back to back, where you have... Attention residue three pm. You're still in the eleven am meeting because you haven't had any downtime in between.
0: Exactly right. Now, what does that tell us? They're obsessed with how they manage themselves because what they had understood over the course of the years, and we're talking about high school principals to the managing consultant Asia pack for Price Waterhouse Coopers, dramatically different roles. The head relies was if I'm the leader, I am the core vessel for leadership. Therefore, how do I optimize me? And that is the, I think is a really interesting thing, right? The fourth thing that they did every single morning, which goes back to the notion of, of meetings, was they refused or they made sure, whichever one came first, any meeting that they were going into, there was an agenda for that meeting already. And sometimes the agenda might be a pretty straightforward. You know, it's our weekly meeting with this supplier. And each week we have the same conversation. That's fine. But there was an agenda in the meeting. Sometimes it was, we need to make a decision about X. But they were crystal clear for themselves that in this meeting my role is to either make a decision whatever i.e they were focused on that meeting which is why they were 15 minutes 25 or 50 mm-hmm. right because you don't need to have a 50 minute meeting if the thing could be done in five minutes right so obsessed with the diary and the evening time what we noticed was they had they were triggered to do something in the evening. they all had an evening reflective practice some of them did it while they walked home some of them did it in the car some of them dictated their own answers to themselves in the car some of them did a handwriting in in a journal but the reflective process always was how did I go today versus my objectives who did I let down or this is the question that came up most how was I the blocker today and that's the question that we found to be the most transformative from a leadership how have I blocked this organization or this team or this person today
2: the richness of that from a coaching psychology framework wow making meaning in the day playing back what worked and then the psychological detachment to transition that space between work and home
0: massive I interviewed a lady of, of one of the groups and um, she's in Auckland and she said to me you know I walk home every evening it's typically a 50 odd so a minute uh, walk and I, I use that for my reflect and pace. And so when I walk in the door, I'm finished. I'm a, my family's there. The days that I have a really hard day at work, I take the long route home. It's like one and a half walk. And therefore I'm taking longer to process it. And when I walk in the door, I'm ready to go.
2: I'd love you to do a follow-up interview with that lady. What has she done after working from home? Cause I think that's where a lot of people have lost that transition.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. What was also interesting you know, about that group? We had six out of the 40 all of them women all wake up somewhere between two and three in the morning and they'd wake up with an idea or concern they'd, they'd turn over in the bed turn on the bed light, the uh, side bed light make a quick note in the notebook go back to sleep
2: well from a sleep practice dr tom buckley would say that is very good management because you're writing it down uh, if you're not having downtime, reflective practice during the day, so parasympathetic activation and getting out of beta into going alpha, then often those thoughts run at night and that's where the person is staring at the roof and it's the train, the GAN from Adelaide to Darwin, 50, 60 carriages long and they can't get to sleep. All these are are aligned with high performance coaching psychology frameworks. So um, the curious part of me, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you keep going, please. Is this nature or nurture? Did these people work these out intuitively or did they have coaching?
0: What became obvious over the time, because don't, don't forget, we, we recorded this every day, seven days a week uh, for four weeks. What became obvious is they didn't necessarily stick to all the habits rigidly every single day. And we did interviews afterwards and what they all said to us. Now, granted, the mere fact of an intervention, the mere fact of being you know, watched and then interviewed raises their own awareness of what their habits are naturally right so there's a bit of a placebo effect in the sense that everyone knows that they're being now watched but what they said to us was they noticed themselves that the days they don't stick to those rituals or habits they are less effective and they have learned over time that these this free to them they have their own set of rituals or habits that if they don't stick to that their overall efficacy drops it may not be straight away but over time it does some of the ones that they shared with us in terms of the habits that they know that if they don't keep up, their efficacy drops very quickly. One is lack of exercise. So the physical movements that all of these folks exercise um, at least uh, every second day, some of them every single day. Now, exercise might be as simple as a walk to and from work, and that's an hour each way, a good amount of exercise, but all of them put exercise as being a core part of their self-management. The second thing that they was they had identified for them and this is what i find profound and this is really important for business owners they have identified for them their time is finite so therefore i'm choosing to be in this leadership role whatever that role was and i'm choosing to be here so therefore i'm making choices about my time i am choosing to spend time in particular places i am making a choice as to who i want to spend my time with they had all recognized that i could have many many friends or associates i haven't got the capacity to spread myself that thing so they had actively chosen my family are most important. So therefore, when I go home, I am home, hence the reflection piece on the way home. And for all of them, they said to us, which we were very surprised at, I have a small core group of friends and they are my friend. I don't need more than that. And I certainly haven't got the time to be their friend to a bigger group. I very purposeful around my leadership role is really important to me. My time is finite. If I'm to maximise me, I can't have that many distractions. Here are the core people I want to spend my time with. And I think that sense of purpose and the sense of high performance, you're right, is extraordinarily effective. From a leadership perspective compared to, let's say, uh, an athlete, the questioning around how am I the blocker and how, how can I be the enabler, that was the most powerful question of all.
2: If you look at those four or five habits and then the two not to do, can you play that back as a statement? And if our listeners did those five or six things every day that would set them up for high performance so give us a summary
0: starting point always is number one is get a clear picture for yourself why are you doing this business or as a founder why am i setting this up and what kind of leader does the business need not what leader do i want to be what kind of does the business need that's question number one that sets an external sense of purpose and and, and an attraction for where i need to be second is how do i set up a daily practice of priming myself in the morning it takes no more than ten minutes, and an evening reflection that takes no more than ten minutes on how I've gone. That's the practice. Third one is how do I get my body in such a way that it's primed to do its role? So nutrition, exercise, everything that you have on Strive Stronger and in your books. And fourth, how do I have a small cadre of people around me that I can truly trust who would give me feedback, but also a cadre of people who are my friends and that's the folks who nourish me. Mm. Get those right do
2: well clarity and purpose state management energy and sustainability and having a tribe, love it. Now I've got one question to ask on that, then I'm gonna give you a few rapid fire questions and then we wanted to let everyone know where they can get more of pod and especially listening to you with your leadership diet, which is one of my favorite podcasts at the moment, especially the reflective piece. If you wanna know what I'm talking about, you're gonna have to go and listen. There's a nice little anchor to go and get some pod in your life. The 60, 40, 60% of the people you surveyed globally were female. Why do you think females? Were 60% of that cohort, or why do you think you've said before
0: females often make better leaders? So let me let me just uh, distinguish that. So in the high performance group, so of the on this data set, the top 10 percentile of leaders in this data set, and then the folks that we had in our survey, the majority were women. So that's that says to us, according to that tool, and it's been shown in other tools as well that um, women are certainly at least as equal as men in the highest performing levels, but actually are often higher performing. I think there's a few different levels to it, a few different reasons to it. In this particular leadership tool, and there's quite a few like this, and the data is similar across them, the only area in leadership assessment where women are different to men, as in women and men score very, very similarly in every aspect, bar one, and that is women are more caring for people than their men colleagues are i.e., as a leader I'm seen to demonstrate to my staff that I am more caring for them than my male colleagues do that's the only thing that's distinguishes them everything else women and men have very very similar traits and, and success right where women also have a slight difference is they are less egotistical around how good they are as in the arrogance level is not as high so for me I look at that and go okay I demonstrate to people that I care for them and I I demonstrate less that I am more important than them.
2: They've done research on that, right? Male and female go for the same job interview. Let's say they get six out of ten questions right, four not right. Male comes out, high fives everyone. I nailed it. woo look in the mirror. You're the man. Female comes to how would you go? I bombed it. Oh, it's terrible. So it's it's, it's, it's a, just a – I know I'm making a stereotype, but I see that so often when I'm working yeah, with athletes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So often in, in executive terms.
0: Yep. Um, In in one of our podcast episodes, uh, I I spoke to uh, one of our mutual colleagues, actually, who is a very talented and experienced um, headhunter at the very senior levels in corporate. And one of his specialities is helping leaders transition into their new company, their new role as chief executive, whatever it is. But his research, his whole PhD was looking at what are the environmental factors that help people be successful in the organization? And what came out of that was not just what you just said. And on top of what you just said is, you know, you got a new job going. There's 10 criteria that are really important. A man has got four of them. He goes, fantastic. I've got a growth edge here. I wouldn't take the new job if I didn't have something to learn. So great. I'm your candidate. Woman's got eight of the 10 criteria. oh, sorry, I'm not good enough yet. I need to have nine or 10. Now, it's a bit of a stereotypical view, of course, and not everyone sits into that category. But there's definitely a gender difference between men and women around arrogance. And from a leadership point of view, that translates into, I think, a stronger sense of people wanting to work for that leader. She demonstrates she cares for me. She's equally capable to any man that I've worked with, and she's not an arrogant person that is showing off to me. I am more committed to them. I I suspect that's what it translates into.
2: Yeah, well, we could dig into that a whole lot more, and we will. I've, I've already got a parallel port running on the Strive Stronger podcast by me when we've got that up and running early next year, we're going to get you back and we'll talk more specific to high performance and leadership as well, because uh, you already give me so much content that we can pull a thread on next time. All right, three questions, and then we'll get out of here. The question number one, is there a play, a poem, a song, a book, something in your life that you draw inspiration from?
0: Well, you know that your, your colleague Tom and I are huge YouTube fans, so I, I draw huge inspiration from you too, but
2: let, let me give two specific... I know you've key. both been to enough U2 concerts to fund one of Bono or Larry or one of the Edge's holiday <laughs>
0: homes. I <laughs> think <laughs> we've been to 50 concerts around the world. I mean, for me, this this my favourite song of all time is Where the Streets Have No Name. Melodically, I just love the... the I'm, I'm a bass player and I love the melodic side of the song. But spiritually or vocally, I love the notion of... they were In that song, they're pointing to let's go somewhere where they potential is enormous like they haven't even named the streets yet that's that's how exciting this place can be we're going to where the streets have no name and as a young i think it was 15 or so when i first heard that song it just really spoke to me and so what i love about you two and particularly bono is the sense of passion for what's possible and they're now in their 60s and they're still oh, really new
2: i saw new, them at uh, the sydney Cricket Ground. Phenomenal. And actually, I'm going to listen to that song tonight. I love it, especially loud. Two is actually a question on music. Why should everyone listening to this, no matter what size business you have, build some music into their life? So this is a curated question for you. But what are the benefits for music for us in business?
0: So I'm I'm a music fan. I'm a musician. You know, I'm a part-time amateur musician. But music has always been a core part of who I am not just because i play it but i think music unlike any other language and any other modality of art first of all it speaks to everybody but the way melody works it touches you at i believe as a soul level and it touches you way beyond you know feel and smell etc and i think that is a, a, a way or a lever to both excite you. So, you know, the reason we use music to get in, in exercise is to give you an up-tempo sense of excitement. It can alleviate stress to different types of music and give you a sense of relaxation. Like there's so much to do with music. For, but for, So for me, it, it actually touches your soul more than anything else. Music is free. It elevates your soul, elevates your brain, elevates your creativity. Why would you not want to use it? Another good U2 song, Elevate.
2: There we go. Dr. Tom will be very proud of my link on that one. And the final question, I've asked you lots of questions today and I've I've loved today. I've found out a lot about you and do the analysis over a beer in Jeroa or Jeringong another day. But I've actually, asking you those questions about when you were young, just shows why you're so composed and compassionate and caring and lots of other C words to get the alliteration in there. So it's been wonderful learning more about you. But I have asked you lots of questions. Is there a final question you'd like me to ask you? Or do you want to do a flip? Is there a question you'd like to ask me?
0: Stop me with that. You have very successfully set up shut down, sold, reinvented businesses, reinvented yourself many times. You're, you're doing it again. What has been the thread of energy and passion for you that you brought through all those iterations? And with that, what has sustained you to keep reinventing yourself through different businesses?
2: i hmm. never been asked that question. <laughs> now I'm stumped. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the first one, what's got me going? I, I think what got me going initially was a chip on the shoulder, personal trainer in Hobart. A chip meaning I wanted to prove to people I could do business. I had a business owner back then. I, I suggested wanting to do personal training. He told me it'll never work. So the arrogance and ego in me was like, well, screw you. I'll make it work. That, that was way, way, way back. But then it's been more about drive. I, I actually love what I do. And I only worked out my purpose when I left KPMG. So I, I think, sort of, that chip initially, I'd only say it's shifted into drive in the last 18 months to two years. And if we get deep with you on the difference between achievement and fulfillment, I reckon for 15 or 20 years, I was achievement focused. Yeah. Trophies, accolades, so the Western definition of success that we learned at. Uh, Sydney University coaching psychology, Todd Kardashian, talks about the good life and the goods life. I think I was chasing the goods life. Power, money, success, kudos. And buy a business, sell a business, buy a business, sell a business. And then when I was at KPMG, and I'd made a decision to leave 12 months out, one, uh, my leader at the time was, was really concerned that I was so transparent because there must be an ulterior motive. No, no, I want to do this in a nice way and the legacy, you know, to have the business keep going. And, and we have got great relationships still at KPMG. So definitely, it was the right thing to do. But there was something missing, Pod. You know, people were saying, oh, yeah, you've done this and you've done that. But I- inside was, why am I always chasing? Why do I need to set up a business, work with a national sporting team, be on TV, write books? It was achievement, 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 largely ego driven. And then I worked with a guy named Richard Burton when I was transitioning from KPMG, who is a purpose coach. And Burdo took four or five months, and I worked out my purpose. And that got me through COVID. So it's, it's a great question to finish up on because what got me going to start with was achievement and accolades. And, and I love helping people, you know that. It juices me. It's not the money. There was the money you'd, you'd probably do one or two and then just lie on a beach and you know, put on a heap of weight and get heart disease. <laughs> but it was something inside me that it wasn't balanced. I was always wanting more. So now I feel much more centred, much calmer around it and much more on purpose and, and i think that'll keep me going for years so i'm late 40s now and you know i want to live to 130. so I, the, the the message for people listening i think you know, get going energize use whatever you need but then go deeper if you want to sustain it and you know we did a podcast with you recently on burnout i think a lot of people burn out because they run out of energy they don't go back to the well
0: i i completely understand and relate to what you just said and it goes back to our earlier conversation about identity you know early in your life your identity was achieved get awards accolades money perfect that's a really important stage to be at and understand what drives that because then then you'll you'll deliver your business accordingly later that's that shifts and then you deliver a different type of business accordingly great I love it it's um very similar to myself you know early in my career I was so proud of how good I was in sales let me tell you how brilliant I am at sales let me tell you how how many cars I can buy it meant now it means nothing to me it means nothing at all from the point of view of the achievement of sales now it's just you know what's the value i'm adding and you know am i really shifting people's lives because they are leading really important businesses now it's a dramatically different place to be Mm.
2: and there's nothing like waking up in the morning and starting a business taking people to a place where the streets have no name That was for you. (laughs) I could just see you. (laughs) I could just see you. It just warmed your heart. It's true. Like I love going where the streets have no name. So for people who would love to get a weekly dose of pod, where do we find you? Where are you at both on your podcast and how do people connect with you either on the socials or on the interweb?
0: Our podcast is called The Leadership Diet. And it's a, uh, we do, we're now uh, just coming to the end of our third season and where our fourth season will start um, in the new year. Um, so leadership diet you can get on, on all podcast um, platforms. Leadershipdiet.com is a website that links um, to all of the materials around the website. So any article we write an article after almost every guest. And so resources around the guests, resources around them, the resources around the podcast. Deliciousdiet.com is a place to go to. My own personal website is podosullivan.com. So stuff that I'm thinking about and doing is over there. And then my business website is theleadershipcontext.com.
2: And we'll put all those details on the show notes. Pod, I love catching up. I've loved catching up today. And thank you for sharing so much wisdom.
0: I uh, appreciate the, uh, the invitation and to being here and look forward to our next beer in bureau.